Hey, Summit family, if you have your Bibles, I want you to meet me in Isaiah chapter 40. Isaiah chapter 40. As you're making your way to Isaiah 40, I want to remind you that next weekend is our Christmas services. If you haven't signed up uh, to be a part of those, I want to encourage you to do so. Not only that, but we need people to, who will actually help to serve uh, at those services. Um, so we want to encourage you, if you haven't signed up to do that, we want to really, really uh, encourage you to do so. Isaiah chapter 40, want to draw your attention. Uh, it is that time of year known as Advent where we look back at the coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and we are comforted by the reality that just as he came once, he will come again. To help us with this, I want to just encourage us from one of my favorite Advent passages of Scripture, again tucked away in Isaiah chapter 40, pick me up in verse 1. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her, hear this, iniquity is pardoned that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries in the wilderness, verse three, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I want to talk for just a few moments from the subject, God's gift of love. God's gift of love. Will you pray with me? Father, we do thank you. Centuries in advance, it was prophesied that Jesus Christ, our Savior, would come, and that he would emancipate us, he would set us free. And God, that prophecy, those prophecies were fulfilled. And yet, Lord God, we are comforted by this fact, that just as those prophecies were fulfilled, that there are other prophecies saying that just as he came once, he will come again, that those prophecies will be fulfilled at the same time. So, Lord God, as we now stand at the crossroads, the intersection of these two advents, the first and second advent, we are waiting for the second coming of Christ. I pray that you would give us hope. We need hope, not optimism, Lord. We need hope. And so do that today, we pray. Stand in my body, think with my mind, and speak with my tongue those things you'd have us know, say, and do. May Jesus Christ be lifted up. It's in his name we pray, amen and amen. At the end of World War II, the Allied forces were uh, were in a a little town in Germany. They were making their rounds through all the homes there, and uh, they were just checking in, making sure people were okay, people were safe. They were announcing the freedom that was theirs. In one particular home, a group of these uh, Allied forces, these soldiers, went down deep into the basement of that home. And in that home, they found these wall, these words etched on the wall. Look at them with me. Someone had scribbled on the wall, I believe in the Son 
even when it is not shining. I believe in love, even when feeling it not. I believe in God, even when God is silent. These words were written by a young man who was hiding out from the Nazi Gestapo for a long period of time. I can just see him now waiting, waiting, and waiting, holding tight to a rope of faith for God to show up. When we come to our text, we, we discover that in the book of Isaiah, the people of God are not so good at waiting. Here they are. No, they're not dealing with Nazi Gestapo, but they are dealing with foreign nations nonetheless who are threatening to, to wipe them off the face of the earth. Yet the problem is, instead of waiting on God, they decide to take matters into their own hands. They decide, first of all, instead of waiting on God, that they decide that they're going to make a treaty with the Assyrians. Here are the Assyrians. The Assyrians were this, this brutal nation. They were the, actually the ones who came up with this form of torture known as, as crucifixion. So instead of waiting on God, here they are just looking at their enemy, and they decide, we're going to form an alliance with them. We're going to make a treaty with them, and that doesn't work out so well. The Assyrians actually renege on the treaty. A little while later, instead of waiting on God, the people of God say, okay, it didn't work out with the Assyrians. We'll form a treaty, an alliance with the Egyptians. Just like with the Assyrians, the Egyptians let down the people of God. And sure enough, later, a little while later, they just submit and surrender themselves to the Babylonians who end up taking them off into exile. The story of Isaiah just pulls us into a group of people who are not good at waiting on God. And yet, if we were to tell the truth, many of us right now could be able to confess that we're not so good at waiting on God either. All of us kind of know the frustration of waiting on God and then the disappointment in our own selves of instead of waiting on God, we turn to other things. It's, it's hard to wait on God in general, but it's especially hard to wait on God in the midst of uncertainty and trials and tribulations in life. In some senses, this is all of us. I mean, collectively as a group, it's it's been a rough two-year stretch as we're dealing with a global pandemic. Some of you now have even confessed that during this two-year stretch, you've contracted COVID, or maybe you know of loved ones who've contracted COVID, maybe have even died. Others of us know the, the frustration of these last two years as we've dealt with political and and, and racial division and cultural trauma that has just happened collectively outside of us. And there's all these things caving in on us. If, if I can come, though, to your, to your house, put my feet up on your coffee table and get in your, in your business, some of you, it's not just what's happening collectively, but for, for some of us, we're literally waiting right now on the results from a, a doctor's test. Maybe there's a sense of worry and anxiety filled with that. Maybe some of you are dealing with issues of infertility, and you've been waiting on God to show up and open the womb. Maybe others of you, you've been 
You've been waiting on God to show up in the life of that child or your kids that they would love Jesus with every fiber of their being instead of going out into the far country. All of us know what it's like to deal with trials and tribulations in life. All of us know what it's like to go, God, where are you? And yet the problem is, what happens is that for so many of us, instead of waiting on God, we again know the disappointment and the frustration of forming our little alliances and treaties. No, not with the Assyrians. No, not with the Babylonians. No, not with the Egyptians. But we still know what it's like to form treaties and alliances with the idols of our hearts. I think all of us know what it's like to to go, well, when life backs me into a corner, maybe one of the treaties that I make is with myself. So instead of waiting on God and seeking him, I'm, I am going to make a treaty with myself. I'm, I'm going to take matters into my own hands. And one of the ways we know that is something happens and we get a little stressed out, something comes our way, and, and our reflex reaction isn't prayer. It's not like Daniel in Daniel chapter 6. When he gets the news of the new edict coming down from the king, I love Daniel. What does Daniel do? He goes to his home as always before, opens up the curtains, uh, prays in the same direction. I, I, I wish I had that sense of spiritual maturity, but if I could just kind of put my business out there, I, I, there's a sense in me when, when life comes caving in to just go, I, I can figure this out myself. So I know what it's like to make a treaty with myself and not even invite God into the process. Others of us, maybe we haven't made an alliance with the Assyrians or Egyptians or Babylonians or maybe even ourselves, but we've kind of made an alliance with safety and comfort and security. At the end of the day, I'm just going to play it safe. I'm going to sprinkle enough Jesus to be acceptable, but not too much to be fanatical. I just want a nice, safe, and comfortable and secure life. I, I remember some years ago, I was uh, about 20, 20 years ago, I was out to breakfast with uh, a guy that I call my spiritual uh, grandfather in the ministry, a guy by the name of Dr. John Perkins, and we're sitting there doing breakfast together. And um, towards the end of that breakfast, Dr. Perkins at the time was in his 70s. And, and I said to Dr. Perkins at the end of our breakfast, uh, Dr. Perkins, how can I be praying for you? Now remember, he's in his 70s. And, and without even pausing or flinching, he says, uh, oh, that's easy, Brian. P pray that I don't play it safe. It says, because the older I get, the more I find myself gravitating towards comfort and safety and security. He says, I want to go out like Caleb. Uh, Caleb in the book of Joshua just said, give me the hill country. I, I don't want to play it safe. I, I want to be known as a man of faith. Oh, I, oh, oh for that spirit to come over me. Others of us, maybe we haven't made treaties with uh, other nations, uh, literally, uh, but maybe we know what it's like to make a treaty with moralism. All of us, in fact, this afternoon as I was uh, uh, sitting with my barber, I, I know you're looking at me just going, man, that's a total waste of money, uh, but I'm sitting with my barber and I'm just kind of sharing the gospel uh, with him and uh, just kind of calling out moralism. And one of the things I just said to, said to my barber is like, look, everybody is on a search for meaning, value, significance, and purpose. It's just a part of what it means to be made in the image of God. We want our lives to matter. 
And yet the problem, as I'm talking to this one specific individual, is that uh, so many people in this world feel like I, I can find a sense of wholeness by being a good moral person, that that will bring me a purpose and meaning and value, especially when it comes to trials. That's why so many people are more apt to come to church or be, or be religious in those moments. And if that's you, thank you that you're here. Because for some people, the idea, if I do good things, that will kind of be a good luck charm that, that will kind of put God in my debt to get me out of this mess. But what I want us to see is, no, the Assyrians aren't knocking on our doors or the Egyptians or the Babylonians. All of us know what it's like when we find ourselves hemmed in by life to struggle not only with being patient and waiting on God, but forming our own little treaties and agreements with the idols of our hearts, the idols of our lives. Now, now here's the question. Judah, how did that work out for you? Judah did not trusting God play well for you. The answer is an emphatic, an emphatic no. Here's Judah. What ends up happening is they turn to the Assyrians. That doesn't work out. They turn to the Egyptians. That doesn't work out. They end up submitting and surrendering and being carried off by the Babylonians. And theologians tell us now begins this kind of long, dark night of the soul known as the Babylonian exile. If Judah were here, here's what she would say right now. The only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. What Judah teaches us is that when we take life into our own hands and don't even invite God into the process, things don't get better. They actually get worse. I mean, some of you right now, you, you could say amen. I mean, you could just shout it out. From experience, you know that the only thing worse than waiting on God is wishing that you had. Some of us are in consumer debt right now. In debt over our eyeballs because we wanted certain things, a certain kind of life right now. We just took matters in our own hands and we'll figure this out right now. Some of you, the, the marital strife that you're going through right now is, is, is you've decided that you're going to figure this thing out. You're going to you're not going to wait on God. You're not going to invite God into this thing. And so you've, you've decided to take your life into your own hands, and, and you would just kind of look at the trauma that that's caused your marriage and just go, man, I, I haven't made it better. I've, I've made it worse. Some of you maybe you're looking at strained relationships with your children because you've gone down the path of moralism and just you go down the path of moralism and everything's about behavior with you. That then leads to legalism and then you're obsessing over your kid's behavior and you're kind of a referee throwing a flag at every little thing that they do and now they're older and you're wondering why, why they don't want to be friends with you. You've kind of sacrificed the relationship on the altar of rules. The story of life is we take matters into our own hands. It doesn't make it better. Oftentimes it makes it worse. Oh, uh, Merry Christmas. What a gloomy way to begin this message. But here's hope. Notice what God says to a people 
who have repeatedly thumbed their noses at him. He says, beginning in verse 1, comfort, comfort my people. Now, in order to get our arms around this, you, you have to see this in its proper emotional context. Here, here is Judah. They've refused to do things God's way. They're carried off to Babylon. How are they feeling? Psalm 137, the opening few verses tells us, look at it with me, by the waters of Babylon, there we sat down and wept. And we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres, for there our captors required of us songs and our tormentors mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And they respond by saying, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? Don't you see? They're weeping. They're wailing. I, I, I believe it's just me reading the white spaces of the text. They're going, man, I've made an absolute mess of my life. Ever been there? And it's in the middle of the weeping and wailing that God says, hey, hey, Isaiah, I want you to get a word to my people. Blows my mind. Comfort. Comfort. Oh, this is good. Our text is originally written in a language called Hebrew, and the Hebrew word for comfort literally means to breathe. He says, say to them, breathe. It's his way of saying, relax. He doesn't just say, say to them, breathe. He says, comfort, comfort, which means breathe, breathe. The imagery is, is vivid. It's as if it's a person who is heaving, who is sobbing. The self-flagellation is through the roof. They are, they are just tormenting themselves. And God doesn't come to them in condemnation. He says, no, 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 I, I want to come in comfort. It, it, it's, it's a picture of a person putting their hand on a person's back, saying, no, no, breathe, breathe. It, it's actually a picture of what, um, what happened to my Georgia Bulldogs the other night. As a matter of full disclosure, I am a Georgia Bulldogs fan. I grew up in Atlanta, Georgia Bulldogs fan, man, and uh, golly, um, I'm a godly person because suffering brings character. The other week, we played the SEC championship game. That didn't go so well for us, and for numerous reasons, we lost that game. One of those reasons, though, is our, our quarterback, Stetson Bennett IV, threw an interception, a pick six, and I mean, you could just kind of see he, he makes this mistake, and you could just see he's beating himself up. Again, the self-flagellation, and our head coach, Kirby Smart, runs off the sidelines towards him, and he doesn't come screaming, yelling, and cursing. He, he comes embracing with comfort. This is exactly how God comes to Judah. Yes, I just compared God to Kirby Smarts. <laughs> but here's where my illustration falls short. I mean, we can see Kirby comforting his quarterback because his quarterback made a mistake. God isn't comforting a group of people who just made a mistake. He, he's comforting people who have been walking in willful rebellion for centuries. 
It, 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 is as if, it is as if God is coming to his people the way that the father of the prodigal son came to his, his youngest son who had thumbed his nose at his dad, asked for his inheritance in advance, the Hebrew equivalent of him saying, I wish you were dead. And what happens years later, the dad sees him and runs after him, hugs him, embraces him, calls him a son, not a servant, throws him a party. That is the God that we serve. God comes in comfort, and and I want you to hear this. This is good news because some of you are right here, right now, under the sound of my voice. You know what it's like to say, man, what a bad decision. What a bad choice. I can't believe I did that. If I could just say someone maybe is even here, and you've had an abortion. Here you are years later. Every time you see a child who's the age of what your child would have been, triggers you. The tears. And I can't believe I did that. How does God respond? Comfort, comfort. Some of you are here right now and you've gone through a divorce. And it was you who are at fault. You're the one maybe who stepped out on your marriage. You, you were the offender. How, how does God respond? Comfort, comfort. Why does God respond this way? Because God understands that guilt and shame and condemnation will never fundamentally change the structures of our hearts. It is only grace. That's why Romans 2, 4 says it is God's kindness that leads to our repentance. It is never our repentance that leads to God's kindness. I I love this, though. My favorite word in verse 1, though, isn't even comfort. It's my. Comfort, comfort, my people. If I'm Isaiah at this point, I want to go, no, 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 God, you mean this people. That's what you mean to say, God. You don't mean to say my. If I'm Isaiah, I want to be like, let me remind you, God, um, I've been prophesying about this group of people, Judah, through five kings. I know her. She is rebellious. God says, no, no, no. Judah ain't my girlfriend. She's my wife. I'm, I'm in covenant with her. She's, she's mine. I, I, I got a buddy of mine. Actually, he's one of my kids' godfather. He's a record producer out, out in LA. He's written a few, produced a few hit songs. And we were hanging out one night and it, I don't know how it came up, but he just, he said to me, he says, Brian, it's interesting. Whenever, um, whenever I've been fortunate enough to write a hit song, you need to know it's just kind of crazy. From the time that I write the song till the time I get my first check from that song is typically about 18 months. I'm like, what in the world? Why does it take so long? He says, well, whenever you write a hit song, everybody and their mama comes out the woodwork saying that's mine. So you got to get lawyers. It gets hung up in court. You know, hit song. Everybody goes, mine, mine, mine. Let me just say the obvious. Judah ain't no hit song. She ain't going platinum. She ain't going gold. She has messed up. 
what does God say? Mine. Someone needs to hear that right now. God says of you and I, independent of our behavior, you're mine. The world may look at you as as being messed up, completely broken. God says, that's okay, mine. Or, Or maybe the opposite. The world may look at you as a complete success, and yet when you do an audit on your inner life, your heart, when you rest your head on your pillow at night, you understand the brokenness and the emptiness in your own heart. And what does God say to you in outward success while you feel like a private failure? God says, mine. You may be the one on the college campus other people whisper about with a horrible reputation. What does God say? Mine. Oh, now, Brian, you're being a little flippant. I feel like you're being light here. I don't feel like you're really giving the fullness of the gospel. Well, hold on. Read verse 2. God says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended. Here it is. That her iniquity, iniquity, iniquity is pardoned. The idea of the word iniquity is simply the idea of sin. God says, let's call it what it is. Judah, what you've done isn't uh, emotional baggage. What you've done isn't uh, just dysfunction. What you've done isn't your uh, family issues. Let's put a name to it. What you have done is sin. God calls it out. He's not being light. He calls it what it is, sin. But how can God say to a people who have walked in rebellious sin that your mind, he tells us in the next phrase, he says to them that her iniquity, here it is, is pardoned. I do the word pardoned in the original language uh, Hebrew. It's actually, here it is, a technical temple term, which means to receive with pleasure, to receive with pleasure. Now, we call this a technical temple term because because when God's people sinned, there was specific detailed instructions on what they were to do. They were to go to the temple. They were to get get an animal without spot or blemish. They would buy this animal. It would be inspected. It would be presented to the priest who, right before killing it, would look over it again. When When the priest looked over it again, they would receive it with pleasure and offer it as an atoning sacrifice for their sins. Here we see a foreshadowing in our text of Jesus Christ. God says, I am able to say of you that you are mine, not because of your performance. You don't measure up, not because of your goodness. You don't have any, but I can say of you that you are mine because of the ultimate spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. Died in your place and for your sins. Oh, friends, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are in covenant relationship with God because of the sacrificial atoning work of Jesus. Now it gets even gooder. I know that's bad English, but it's good theology. He says in verse 3, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up. 
and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is rich in its cultural significance. Back then, when a king would go to a town for the first time, they would never allow a king to go to a town for the first time using pre-existing roads. They thought it was a security threat. So whenever a king came to a town for the first time, they would always build new roads. And the idea here is they wanted to create safety. Now notice what happens here. Look at the, 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 the language that is used. He says again, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, here it is, make straight in the desert, straight in the desert, a highway for our God, watch it now, every valley shall be lifted up, every mountain and hill be made low, the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. Here it is, Isaiah is describing a road that is perfectly straight, perfectly safe, and guaranteeing the arrival of the king. What is Isaiah saying? It is a foreshadowing of the advent, the first advent of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ, he is saying through this idiom, is guaranteed to come. He will come. This prophecy is given 750 years in advance, and guess what? It is fulfilled. Some of us, we've, we've gone out and we've purchased a home. Maybe we were looking at some homes and we landed on a specific home that we, we definitely liked, and what did we do? We, we consulted with our loved one or loved ones, and, and then we turned an offer in, and maybe the seller came back and said, the offer looks good, but, but we're going to ask for something called earnest money. Now, we understand what earnest money is. It's typically about 1% to 3% of the total value of the home. It's a substantial kind of price, non-refundable. But why does the seller want you and I to give earnest money? Because they want to make sure that what we start, we're going to finish. They want to make sure that we're not going to back out on this thing. You need to understand something about Jesus Christ, that his first advent was earnest money. He came in this first advent, and boy, he came. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. He came and, and lived a sinless life. He came and he announced the kingdom, the idea of the kingdom as a sense of shalom, bringing wholeness between us and God vertically and us and each other horizontally. Boy, did he come. He came and he was beaten and bruised on our behalf. He came and he hung on a cross. He came and he was buried in a borrowed tomb. He came and boy, he didn't stay in that tomb. He was resurrected the third day. According to the scriptures, he came. He boarded a cloud back to heaven. In the New Testament, they prophesy of the second coming of Christ. His first coming, it was earnest money. He, he paid in full the price of our sins. It's an earnest money deposit in the sense of the truth of Christmas is just as he came once and fulfilled his word, he will come again. This is not a maybe. This is not a might be. 
Jesus Christ is the original promise keeper. He will keep his promise and return again. What does this mean for us? Isaiah says, here's what it means to us, that you and I are to be about the business, verse 3, of preparing the way of the Lord. Here you and I in between the first advent and the second advent. He came and he will come again. What are we to do in, in the meantime, in between time? You and I are to be about the business of advancing his kingdom. What does this mean? We are to share the good news of Jesus Christ, opening up our mouth boldly, even to individuals who are stealing your money, cutting your hair. When you don't need a haircut, we are to declare the good news of Jesus Christ. That ultimately that barber isn't there, that barista isn't there, that person isn't in your life ultimately to service you. That God has allowed your paths to intersect because they need to hear the good news of Jesus Christ. Preparing the way of the Lord means that we're committed to justice and righteousness. Preparing the way of the Lord means that we're living on mission. Preparing the way of the Lord, as we like to say around here, means that we've put our yes on the table. Preparing the way of the Lord means that life for us is so much more than than money and clothes and houses and comfort. What, get, what helps to, us to navigate this life is the life to come. And there's coming a day when Jesus Christ will say, give me back my breath and I shall behold him face to face. And in that moment, may I be able to say, I have done everything I can by the power of your spirit to prepare the way of the Lord. Oh, friends, this is the message of Christmas. God is saying to us, no matter how bad you screwed up, he's waiting for you, not with condemnation, but with comfort. It's good news that he declares over you and I, you're mine. Why? Because our sins have been pardoned by the ultimate spotless lamb, Jesus Christ. And having our sins pardoned, we share that good news with others. So, Father, we bless you in this place today. We thank you. Thank you, Jesus, that you came once. Thank you, Jesus, that you will come again. Oh, God, would you strengthen us to wait? Some of us, this is a right now word waiting on test results, waiting on loved ones who have turned their back on you, waiting, waiting on healing in our body, waiting on a job. Lord, help us to wait. And Lord, we thank you for the forgiveness that is ours. We thank you that ours is not a contractual agreement with you. We're in covenant relationship with you. Thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. For he truly is the reason for this season. In Christ we pray. Amen.